if you're interested in enlightenment and waking up and waking down and what needs to be done to achieve this, do not miss this conversation with Samuel Bonder and his lovely and profound teaching partner, his wife, Linda Groves Bonder. I think you're going to really love this. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, Life-Enhancing, Paradigm-Rattling Conversations with Cutting-Edge Thinkers, Contemplatives, and Activists, with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. I am always John Dupuy and my esteemed co-host, Dr. Roger Walsh. Today we have some extraordinary people, Samuel Bonder and his partner and wife, Linda. Samuel is a spiritual teacher and along with his partner, Linda. Let me, let me say a little bit about how we became connected. Years ago, when Ken Wilbur was just starting to go public and have a website, uh, integralnaked.org, if you guys remember that. I got on that quite early. You could tell by the all the recorded conversations, you know, I was like, right at right. There weren't many people that had talked to him at that point. So I was, I had gone through kind of the integral awakening where I discovered the aqua map and I've been working on the issues of drug addiction and recovery. And all of a sudden it was, it was the Rosetta stone, you know, just everything that needed to be included was there. And I was like, holy cow, I was, I was very impressed. And so I was kind of in a, in a white grace bubble and anybody that at that point was okay with Ken was okay with me. So that was the first one. And then some years later, I got on a, a telephone conversation. Uh, it was a teaching thing or something. I don't know, even know how I got there. But you were talking about levels, you know, judging if people were enlightened or not. Or I hope that's the right term, maybe awakened. I'm not, whatever it was. And I went, well, wait a second. You know, what about this? You know, I said, well, what about compassion? Doesn't that, isn't that important? And you responded, you know, that's a really great idea. You know, and you were just so humble and so open and so, and I was like, I, I like this guy, you know, I don't think he's trying to play a trip on people. Let me say before that, that I was in a cult for about eight or nine years when I was a young man from the time I was 14 to just coming into my adulthood. And that was a very formative period for me. My family got into it and I left and my brother left with me that he went back then it got weirder and weirder and weirder. The children were getting sexually abused and all of this horrible stuff was happening. And it was just the, the guy at the top was nuts. My brother finally came out. Got, I got him out. I flew to Japan uh, to try to rescue his family with him uh, out of this, this compound they had. And we did that. And he, he did really well for a while. But then he sank into this deep, deep depression, which led him to commit suicide in my home. So I was having email conversations with Ken one time. And I, I think getting back to the integral thing, which we're all been part of, I think that some of the big shadow parts, the big mistakes or the big things that people point at being an era in, in our whole thing is our relationships to certain gurus or people that, you know, put themselves forward as being that. I agree. So I, I was talking to Ken about it and, you know, I was getting pissed and this was about a particular guy who comes from Judaic persuasion. And Ken said, you know, he kind of got snappy with things. You got a lot of shadow stuff around here. Mm -hmm. And I told him 
my experience going, uh, well, that's, yep, that'll work. That's pretty good. <laughs> that's pretty legitimate shout of stuff. So when I left the cult, and this is a preamble, I'm sorry going on so long, but there, I just think I need to put this out. I had to give up everything that I learned about God or about faith or about any of those things. It was very, very Bible centric. And then, of course, the, the cult leaders writings became everything. But I had had a, uh, my first mystical experience before the cult. So I had something, you know, it wasn't all about that. And at that point, I said, I'm going to have to figure this out. And if it comes out to, you know, I don't believe atheists. I guess I'm an agnostic now, but I want to find out. And I kind of just committed that I was done with teachers. You know, I wasn't going to do the guru thing anymore. If God was real, I could find him by myself. And if I screwed up and couldn't, then that's on me and not on anybody else. I couldn't blame anyone. So that's the path I've chosen. Certainly have fallen on my face plenty of times, but uh, I would I would say I'm a mystic. I have had experiences of God connection with everything. Of, of, of many of these different experiences that have that have shaped and haunted my life. And so I'm on that path. So when it comes to spiritual leaders, they, you know, I, they really got to prove I got, you know, cult dar big time. I've helped people with that. And some of my nieces and nephews who were exposed to all that stuff are still suffering through it all that and working through it years and years later. So that's kind of my thing. So what, uh, what I'm interested in exploring is the kind of the cult and not just because we want to hash out what a, you know, what a crumb scummy guy, Adi Da was, or what a great guy, blah, blah, blah. And that's been done other places. And I heard it, I listened to a conversation with you and Terry Patton the other day, which was really helpful. But there seems to be a, a pattern that works out in human experience where a leader comes forward and people start giving all their power to him. And it's some kind of feedback loop that often spins out into really bad things. And maybe in India and all that stuff, it worked back in that culture, but not in a modern and postmodern culture doesn't seem to do too well. So these are these are issues that I'm very concerned about. And the question, what is awakened? What is enlightened? And I think Roger, was, we were talking and he said, he's reading your book and he said, well, you say that you're enlightened, I guess, or awakened. So I'd like to, and this is a perennial question, that keeps coming through generations and generations of spiritual seekers, several iterations in my lifetime. So I, I'm 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 just fascinated by uh, both these things, and I like you, and I feel trust. So that's that's big. I'm a six on the enneagram. So I hope that was a a, a brief introduction. And Roger, is there anything you want to add to that? Well, no, just uh, looking forward to this dialogue, and uh, we have a lot. There's a lot of interesting, juicy things to get into with you both. And thank you for your work. And I'd love to explore it. Thank you. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah. What what shall we uh, jump into first? Well, can I just respond a bit to you, John? And, and what absolutely thinking about in your experience, in the tradition that you had come from, and that you basically sounds like escaped from. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my heart goes out to you and I, my heart goes out to your family as well you know, with some of the experiences that you had gone through. It's similar to what happened with Samuel. And of course, he can talk more about that Mm -hmm. from his own voice. But I've been with Samuel for many, many years now. And when I first met him back in 1994, October, actually, of 1994, he was teaching for about a year and a half after leaving the dog community. 
And when I was kind of an, an exploring spiritual seeker doing many, many different kinds of events and going to speakers and reading and lectures and sittings and these kinds of things. But when I found Samuel, my heart just felt like something is here with this particular person that I'm not feeling or experiencing from somebody else. Great stuff that I got through all these other things that I had been exploring. And I took the things that I needed and then left the things that I didn't behind. But Samuel had a very interesting transmission. And he had a very interesting way of bringing in spirituality and mutuality in the form of, I want so many people to find their unique way of awakening. And I want to help people land more fully in themselves. And I'm sitting there hearing him speak about this. And as I got to know Samuel more fully, I realized that what he experienced in the Daw community was in many ways quite different from the trajectory that Samuel felt himself into and wanting to explore with individuals one-on-one and in group situations. That's how I started in Waking Down with my Mm -hmm. beloved Samuel Bonder (laughs) and eventually had a profound awakening myself through this work and with the help of a lot of others, but primarily my beloved. And I wanted to kind of weave that in a little bit because Samuel, the way he left is a little similar to what you were speaking to, John, and I appreciate that. Yeah, one of the things about cults, is there's no honorable way to leave. <laughs> true. And when I left, I got I got the version you got just in, in a more Christian, you know, that wow. I'm going to be living in eternal shame. I would say blah, 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 but I would just have a really crummy place in heaven or something like that. Wow. And people would, would greet me when I got off the plane and tried to deprogram me and all these prophecies are like, yeah. whatever, I'm out of here. And anyway, yeah, there's no honorable way to leave. Hmm. Yeah, you know, th- thank you, my love. Appreciate all that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, so many things about that. I think one of them that I'll, I'll go to, and, uh, you know, when we were doing our little setup talk here, we were acknowledging that, you know, we can speak freely here. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that occurred to me recently, after 30 years of transmitting, teaching, counseling, coaching, helping, serving, you know, trying my best and Linda with me nearly all that time as my full partner, as well as my wife. At one, at one point recently, I, th- I thought about this issue of, you know, cultism. And, and, you know, every now and again, someone almost, you know, I mean, it might be in a, in a friendly conversation, but they'll, they'll, their voice will lower a little bit and they'll say, are you guys cult leaders? <laughs> Good question. Good question. You know, I, I was thinking about it recently, and you know, my basic response to, to it is, well, if we're cult leaders, we suck. Because <laughs> I would say 95 right. to 99 percent of the people who've who've come in any contact at all have moved on their way, and the ones who've gotten the most have moved on their ways so decisively. And from the very beginning, you know, coming out of a situation that certainly has many of the hallmark challenges, we could say, of cultism, 
and in many ways had wonderful contributions. And, you know, there's at least a couple of them that I certainly would want to acknowledge today. But, you know, when I went through the process shortly after leaving, there was about a four month rocket shot of changes that led to the stabilization of an awakening. You know, whatever language we want to use to describe that, and we can get into it. Sure. And then I, you know, fairly quickly after that, it became obvious that others were feeling some kind of activating effect just from us being around each other. And so that led me to realize, okay, you know, I can present something different here. And I realized that, it, you know, if anything, I'm, I'm way over in the Jeffersonian Democrat part of the world of all this. Yeah. And it just became very clear to me. And actually, Roger, you picked up a copy of that now very old book, 1998, Waking Down, one of my, my second teaching book that I wrote. Toward the end of that book, I, I make a point that one of the terrible ironies from my perspective of spirituality is that some of the most profoundly evolutionary, activating and transformative processes and energies and forms of wisdom that's available in the world is coming through teachers, teachings and traditions that are saddled with feudal and monarchic social and cultural and political systems. And of course, a cult is kind of a classic example that the leader is treated often as someone who is existentially the superior of all others. You know, we certainly had that in the work that I was involved in for many years. And I realized, wow, I, you know, number one, I don't see people that way. I didn't see people that way before. And I didn't after beginning this awakened life. And so, yeah, a real premise of our work from the beginning has been, you know, for me and for Linda and others who became teachers, we don't want followers. You know, we want people to become their own unique expressions of a simultaneously divine and human realization or presence in life. Mm -hmm. And this is very much, and this is actually, we've been getting lessons on this all along even over these more recent years, that have taken us down to another level of simple, essential peership with everybody we serve. As it turns out, good moves that we made in the last five years or so is we even shifted from the positioning as teachers to coaches. We've always been oriented in a much more supportive, evocative, meeting people where they are, helping them find what they want kind of approach. Mm -hmm. So I'll stop there for now, but I, I just really appreciate actually, John, <laughs> you're jumping right in with some of the, you know, yeah. the touchy, difficult stuff that is so prevalent and is often the hidden, you know, the elephant in the room. Mm -hmm. Thanks for bringing it right into the room. Well, maybe we could start with some basics because you've both mentioned waking and said, you know, that this has become stabilized for yourselves. And 
you know, waking up, waking up is the usual phrase. You in your book, Samuel, and uh, both of you in your teaching speak of waking down. So it might be good just to start with <laughs> with what exactly you're meaning by the term wake, waking, because it's used in a lot of different ways. These terms are thrown around very loosely in our culture these days. So what would you, how, and, and referring to multiple states uh, and degrees of realization and durations, et cetera, et cetera. So yes. maybe you could say a little bit about how you, you use the terms. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Great to be with you two, by the way. <laughs> Just want to throw that out once again. Well, when we talk about waking, there's, there's three things that, we, that are primary in our work, in our teachings, and that is waking down and mutuality. And so the waking aspect in our work, in the human son work, that's another phrase that we use, human son heart work. The waking aspect is when an individual feels and has experienced not just a state of connecting with consciousness, but realizing themselves, whole being, whole bodily, that they have, they are consciousness itself. They are presence. They have, they've had a profound shift and not just of an intuition, but of a complete awareness of their existence embodied as this awakened being of realizing consciousness, realizing that their connection with all creation and all beings is very profound and very stable, a stable stage realization. So that would be addressing more of the waking aspect of our work, the realization itself. And we call it second birth because it's not just simply waking up, you know, a lot of people talk about, oh, I'm, wa- I'm waking up, and that's beautiful. And, and that could talk to more of a transcendent aspect of awakening. So the waking would address more of transcendence, perhaps. But in our work, we combine it with the down aspect of embodiment of every aspect of who you are here as a human being. So that would be my response to perhaps the waking and then weaving in a bit of the down. Okay, I'd like to I'd like to push it a little more, yeah. a more for a greater degree of precision because you, you alluded to a couple of things there. One, a continuity, so more than just a, a transitory straight state, but an enduring capacity or stage. Mm-hmm. Second, you alluded very briefly to a kind of non-duality. I think you implied a oneness with manifestation. Yes. We've got an enduring non-dual state, but there are a variety of those too. So so how would you qualify that? Indeed. Well, yeah, there are there are thank you. Thank you, Roger. There, there are you know a number of distinctions, and we could kind of keep going down rabbit holes here, but trying to frame it in a basic way or continue to clarify. We use uh, sometimes, actually, in that, that book, uh, Waking Down, I use the term onlyness, mm-hmm. kind of in distinction to oneness, in the sense that there is a recognition that one is not just connected to everything and everyone, but also 
is sharing the same fundamental identity in being. And, the, and of course, you know, this is hard to, it, it's something to be realized, but one way to put it, make a picture of it is, you realize an identification with the ocean of all that is, while still very much being the wave, we could say, of your own personal local self, and even kind of the crest foam at the top of the wave, maybe that would be our sense of ego. But the ego sense, as the European philosopher uh, Jean Gebser said in the 20th century, it's not ego side, you know, the killing off of the ego or some kind of ultimate termination or extinction of the local material, basically materially oriented self sense. That is included in this totality <laughs> identity, we could say that has those qualities of the non-dual, in other words, a fundamental sense of a, a, a quality of no distinction or difference, even while all the different separate things and beings are emerging and life is full of all of its, its differences. So there's also a quality of this that, that has to do, again, with that down part that Roger you know, brought into the conversation, where the process that people go through in our work involves a kind of falling out of the degree of brain-mind-centeredness of their identity, which for many people who are very physical or very emotional, they didn't think that they were up here until, as we put it, they rot out of that. So there's a kind of a a dark night of the whole being, we could say, or a, a disintegration of previous identifications that allows this quality of awakeness to emerge and to feel like it's right here in the flesh, not just somewhere up and out or way back behind it all or transcending it all. And it is both and, both a radical transcendence that is continuous and also a radical, we could say, imminence or being all of this. So there's the transcendence is no longer implying that there is a somewhere else one has to get to. Okay, well, let's see if we can specify this a little more, because this is very, very important, because, of course, you've, you've suggested there's a non-duality to the kind of awakening that you've both experienced and helping other people to experience. And of course, non-duality is kind of the buzzword of spirituality, these, you know, the, the phrase of the of the month or the year or whatever. As is embodied awakening. Uh, not quite so much, I don't think. But it's getting there. It's getting there. <laughs> it's getting there, yes. yes. <laughs> so, Sorry, Ron. So in this <laughs> non-dual, enduring non-dual awakening you, you're speaking of then, you speak of a a non-separate you implied a non-separation but there are different kinds of non-separation there's a there's a sense of a fading of the separate self sense which is how you're using the term ego and thank you for refining that because ego is another one of these terribly overused terms mm -hmm. so we're here referring here not to the ego in the sense of the way the psychodynamic people talk about as a kind of structuring of a structuring of experience but more the more the separate self sense so you're talking about a 
a self-sense which includes all manifestation here. But I'm not quite clear whether you're talking about a self-sense which is identified with phenomena per se, or the underlying nature of being, which is at the heart of all experience. Mm, it's both. Okay. Yes, it's simultaneous. We, we talk a lot about the simultaneity of being here mm. as a divinely human being. And so it is, it, it is both. Yeah. That's a simple response that I would have. So in, if we were using, framing it in some of the traditional terms, this would be uh, under the category, using the yoga category of the hint of Sahaj Samadhi then? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it is a, a, a form of Sahaj Samadhi and there's, we should probably I, you know, clarify, uh, clarify that. <laughs> Please, Ooh, yes. So, so <laughs> Sahaj, it's often called the natural state, meaning that you're living in this transcendental condition while also walking around and participating in everyday life. Deeper meaning that I learned of the term Sahaj is, is it's twinned. So it's as if the ultimate sameness and all the differences are like fraternal twins. And there's a simultaneity, a both and. And yeah, that quality is something that is also rooted in our work. We use the word heart with at least a capital H and sometimes smaller caps, E-A-R-T, to use it as a way of pointing to the ultimate reality, but in a manner that speaks to something that we all know we've got right here, not merely the truth is out there or way back in or up or whatever. And so, yeah, there is this, both and identification in which a couple of paradoxes, if I can keep it all in mind here. One is part of the way we see the whole process of human living is, and Carl Jung in later in life in his book, Answer to Job, really makes a point of this. In his language, the nature and meaning of human history and evolution is not man is seeking God, but actually the other way around. God is seeking or becoming human. And from our perspective, that's really quite literal. So the notion of ourselves as a separate ego gets fundamentally replaced. The, the, the quality of that, you know, often for many people, very painful and stressful separateness that dissolves. It doesn't mean that, you know, there's this homogenous soup. It's both and. We still see the different others, and there are relative separations of all kinds. But there is this unifying sameness. And the ego sense, then, of the local personal self, or the sense of the individual soul, maybe more spiritually oriented and open, both are porous to this greater reality that is the enduring and abiding foundation. Yeah, let, let, let me say something here. When I was first formulating, I don't know, 14, 15 years ago, uh, I awake starting that. I was meditating and I had this very powerful non-dual experience. <laughs> and 
and it was very good. It's not just that you're splattered like on a windshield, a bug and you're everything. And oh my God, it's like, it's deeply perfect and beautiful and loving and warm. But then the, the teaching of the experience was, it was almost done humorously. And by the way, your little dinky individual self that is floating in a sea of consciousness or ocean of light and love, I think the original Quaker Fox said, is also true. And it really, really matters in a sacred, holy, mysterious way, your little dinky John self matters. Yeah. And it's like, oh, okay. And it's like, it's kind of what we've been doing in the transpersonal movement. And Roger, your work that you've you know, pioneered over the years is that this non-dual Eastern, and we had our own Western versions of it, non-duality, but also the individuality of psychology and the individual soul and that stuff that comes down through the Western sources. And so it kind of really shaped my life that both of these things are super important. If you, and if you ignore the one just to do the other, if you just do the ego individual, your dog chasing your tail the whole time. And then if you just focus on the one, you forget the little and whatever you learn comes through your screwed up individual self and you just cause all kinds of havoc and problems. So yeah, that, that's been kind of a formative, important thing. And, and Christopher Bache, and we, we talked to on this podcast earlier, and man, I have a lot of love and respect for, he said one thing that really stuck with me, probably more eloquent than what I just said, is that individuality is not the problem. Separation is the problem. Exactly. And that was like, yeah, that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, right. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And, and, Thank you. You know, that very well said. And what people go through in our process is not just having that concept and believing it, but embodying it, have, having it be a lived reality. And so, so yeah, it, it's, it's a very inclusive quality of living and it puts you through changes so you know part going back to what i was saying earlier there there is this sense of this greater nature that is also one's own most intimate identity but we haven't had access to it we're growing into it and there's a sense of a crystallizing that goes on in this kind of process so what we're doing is we're helping people cooperate with that greater nature, you know, one of the ways we phrase it is the, the one great heart we all share that's coming alive and awake in us and through everybody and all of us together. That's part of the, the vision that, you know, gets us out of bed every day. Let's, let's cooperate with that and help people come into this each in their own way, which is yes. another distinction in our process that Linda expresses so simply and beautifully. This is not cookie cutter. Isn't a formula here. We've got all kinds of ways we can help, but we meet people as best we can where they are to allow them to come into this, not only realizing, having their own realization of it, but also finding their own way mm, with, with our help, but you know, not, not being told, now you do this, now you do that. Right. And the ways that people find are surprising to us and even mm-hmm. to, to themselves because not every person 
has that intuition or that deep need in being to realize themselves as this non-dual embodied awake being on this planet. Some individuals and levels and lines, some individuals are really just needing to be a little bit more aware and more compassionate to their family or their friends or their co-workers. Others may be feeling like there's something missing, but I'm not quite sure what that is. And so I need a little bit of assistance and 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 direction perhaps or suggestions in discovering in themselves with assistance a unique pacing yeah. perhaps and rhythm of these discoveries. So the cookie cutter process is not anywhere to be found in the work that we do with individuals. And interestingly enough, when an individual feels like that something is missing, but they're not quite cognizant of the fact that it's a deeper, deeper need in their spiritual life, perhaps, as they explore some of these seemingly insignificant places or subtleties, and they start to have shifts in their awareness and shifts in the way that they're feeling and the energetics in their body. And when they start to explore some of these things, they realize, wow, I think the missing piece might be a little bit more than what I initially was intuiting. And it takes them deeper. It helps, it helps them drop. I, I'm saying it you know, the discussions, the assistance, just in real connection, human being, mutuality connection, that kind of holding and deep listening and not telling them what to do, but making suggestions all along the way, it puts it to them to have these discoveries. And it is so organic and so fluid and so fulfilling. We've been doing this for many, many, many years now, and we're still evolving and still discovering things about ourselves through the kind of assistance. And I don't even want to call it work. It's, it's not work. It is discoveries, mutual discoveries in these sessions and in these groups that we host, you know, through the years all around. So, so to your credit, you take a very individuated approach to the people you work with. And clearly, the relationship with you is is a very important part of that. But there are also clearly other aspects. And I don't know, you know, you may not have it formulated like the eightfold path of various steps, but but what are the elements of the practices that you offer that are effective in helping people mm. have the same kind of realization you do? Because it's not as, you know, you're talking about a, a degree of realization, which is not common. And, and I would imagine that people that work with you, they want to work with you for a reason, that are a certain point where it's not enough, whatever they're doing, and, and they're looking to you for guidance and in, into the, the deeper realm that we've been talking about. So it's pretty, I imagine it's self-selective, the, the, the students who would come. And same with you, Roger. I mean, you've been a Buddhist teacher and, you know, for years and years and years. And at a certain level, there's certain things that bring people to the point where they're willing to sit for hours and hours or whatever the work is. It ain't easy. Mm, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. yeah, thank you both. Of course, an important question. Fr from the beginning of someone's 
you know, interaction with us, we basically, in general, we're, we're typically saying to people, you know, there's a couple of things that are really important for you to do. One of which is, as we like to put it, tank up on the transmission aspect of this, which is really quite central. It's actually the whole process is enormously quickened and streamlined by this participation in really a transmission field that paradoxically isn't just an energy coming from us to others or even a consciousness that we're somehow imparting. It's, it, it's based on that meeting in mutuality together. And there is a simultaneous transmission and reception from both and to both parties. And we also encourage people to, and this is, this is a, you know, a second piece, to explore the precepts and the practices that we've been able to distill out of now, I'm coming up on three decades since the changes that got me going with all this. And these have been gradually emerging. And so we have a, a suite of different kinds of practices that we can recommend to people, suggest they try. Mm -hmm. Various kinds include guided meditations. Guided meditations. We, we don't, by the way, a good example of the individuality of it. You know, we don't say to people, you should meditate X hours a day or anything like that. In fact, for many people, they might have been doing a lot of meditation through their, their journey and have come to a point where it's just not a viable means for them. And we encourage them to find that out. So much of the actual practice that really works is people getting, oh, actually, I'm in charge. Okay, should I do this or do that? And we'll say, well, why don't you try it and find out? Mm -hmm. At a certain point, people are, get to the place, speaking of the waking aspect, where they may be ready. We may sense where they may feel already that they need to go deeper into, you know, what the hell is this consciousness stuff anyway? <laughs> what is consciousness? How do I access it? And we have our own kind of version of what's, you know, in some traditions called pointing out instructions that can help people begin to access that, you know, in their own way. So, you know, here's a good example of the individuation of the system. When I was coming up, it, my, it was always taught to me that, you know, you don't, you don't come up with your own practice. You do what the awakened guru or master or sage tells you to do because they're, you know, it's got the power of having worked for them or, you know, they, they know it and, and are confident in it. And you don't try to come up with your own approach. Well, in my own process, and, you know, I won't get into the whole story of it, but even during the latter years that I was with my primary in-life heart guru, Adi Da, and he was very much in that mode of, you know, never, never do self-guruing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the, the most direct access to that conscious principle, I have a book by that title, The Conscious Principle, that I found was a question, an inquiry question I came <laughs> up with myself. Well, later, 
when that questioning, sure enough, had been very instrumental in my own stabilization, it dawned on me, oh, actually, the discovery of the languaging of mind, whether it's a question, inquiry, or an affirmation, that really plugs one in best is something they have to discover on their own. We can help them, you know, for instance, is is the word consciousness or awareness or being or presence or freedom might be any number of specific words. Find out, ask yourself questions. What was was the question that you worked with for yourself, if I may ask? Sure, it was kind of a short and a long form. What is it that is conscious of everything arising? But the long form, like a parenthesis after it, even if mind is all over the place and my body is suffering terribly, you know, even if there are all these distractions of my attention going on, what's conscious already aware of all of that? Mine was, where is consciousness now in this moment? Yeah. That really helped me a lot, too. Hmm. So each of you came up with your own what in Zen would be called a Genji koan, that there's koan which life itself gives you. And so so that's been that's been very important for you both, it seems like. Yeah. And you also so I'm just trying to trying to get a feel for the for the overall offerings and system effectively that you're offering here. And, you know, maybe we can, to be fair, you might want to call it a system of no system, but still, you know, it sounds like primarily it's relationship and transmission as, as key. And within that, the offering of certain things. First, first a self-empowerment and encouragement for self-inquiry. So we've got three things there. A fourth would be uh, guided meditations. And the fifth, pointing out instructions. We should say what pointing out instructions are. Traditionally, they were you know, pointing towards most generally a particular view or perspective, but more specifically in a number of traditions, and I think in yours, pointing towards awareness itself. Is right. that so fair? Okay. So you've got those five elements, which are very clearly very valuable and I love that you're, you know, individuating and empowering people, which is very important. I'm not hearing a couple of others that are usually regarded as crucial. For example, an ethical foundation or emotional transformation. John mentioned before in his one of his very early meetings with you, Samuel, raising the question of the importance of compassion. So, ah, those. How about those questions about ethics and emotional transformation, which are both usually part of, as far as I can see in my research, every tradition. What was the first word there? Ethics. Ethics. Okay, yeah. Yes, thank you. You've heard of it, I assume. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, very much so. Excellent. Great, great stuff. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Thank you, Roger. Before we jump into that, I want to go back a little bit to the offerings that we have, because we used to do a lot of different kinds of workshops, if you will, the human son experience being one of them, which actually is a very distinct teaching of waking down and mutuality. It's 12 gateways to fulfilling and realizing yourself as a divinely human being, so to speak, you know, just crystallizing it. So that is a very specific teaching 
there's also two teachings that I developed years ago, one being six-step recognition yoga and active conscious dreaming, which is a really great consciousness-based manifestation process that we lead people through and have done many, many years of, which really opens up a lot of exactly what you're talking about, both of you, about the compassion, empathy, ethics, all of these things that help individuals drop deeper into what is it for me that I'm really desiring and needing, perhaps in this moment or it's ongoing, that I want to manifest in my life now. So that's one of the practices that we do as well. And there are others. So I really wanted to bring some of that in prior to addressing what you were asking, Roger, which thank you. The compassion thing, the minute you said, John, early on, compassion, oh, just so sang to my heart. <laughs> because when, when people start to open up, oh, I can almost feel tears behind my eyes. When people start to open up and realize themselves as all and, and knowing themselves as connected to all creation, all sentient beings, there is a level of a compassion and empathy that opens up for many, many, not everyone, because everyone is different. And it takes different practices and and timing and pacing for individuals to access that part of their heart. But when that starts happening, so much gets transformed, not only in themselves, but in the relationships that they have with their helpers, with their families, with their teachers, with their coworkers, with nature, with animals, there's a deep, deep opening of that compassionate heart that happens. So I wanted to really just bring that in. And, and you're pointing about uh, pointing to compassion as an compassion, love, care as an expression of awakening. Yes. How about the other side of that? Because that's unfortunately that's still still a pretty unusual form of compassion. How about specific trainings in compassion? You, I think you pointed to that. Is that part of your work? Thank you. We don't designate it as training in compassion, but actually the the two items or, or elements that you brought up there, ethics and also emotional work in some ways go hand in hand, and that helps also flesh out the picture of the down aspect of our process and the mutuality, which to us, the mutuality principle is not kind of a secondary, nice social ideal adjunct. You know, it's, it is a call. It's a driver. To again, working with both individuation and communion. So who we are in ourselves and who we are in relation to all others. It's a very central aspect of the process to, if we define mutuality or one way to conceive it is, being true to your own nature in its totality while also cooperating in all the ways that are possible and attractive and necessary with others. You know, for me, in terms of origin story here, 
before I ever turned east, my first serious teacher, I would say, not someone I ever met, was Martin Buber, I and Thou. Mm-hmm. And his point, which, you know, he had been a prodigious mystic as a very young man, going into altered ecstatic states. And he had an experience of failing to meet someone who then died in a terrible way not long afterward. And he realized it kind of yanked him down out of that. A soldier in World War One. Soldier in World War One who had come to him for counsel and, and he was off in an altered state and wasn't able to talk or didn't choose to come down to talk. So the mutuality is the recognition of the reality and equal divinity of the other as with the self. You know, in Buber's day, he was struggling with the, the huge self-focus of emergent psychology in the early 20th century. And of course, spirituality has, in many contexts, an enormous focus, maybe not on the word self, but on the subjective individual transformation, liberation, and so on. We could call the realization that emerges here self plus other realization, mm-hmm. yeah, or self plus others realization. And I want to add a bit to the story because I was very moved listening to it. And uh, Buber's you know, neglecting to meet with that young man, then dying a few weeks later in, in the trenches, I imagine, deeply wounded him yes. and changed the whole direction of his work and his life. Very powerful stuff. Love that. You know, and he, he remained, you know, he had a book, one of his books that talked to me was Tales of the Hasidim. He, he remained very sympathetic to mysticism, but not at the expense of right here, here and now, relating to the other and to the great other, and not trying to subsume it all into oneself. So for us, it's a both and. So it sounds like another key element then of, of the practices and your work is a peer relationship, not just right. a transmission from yourselves or others who may be awake, but a peer relationship or the Buddhist Sangha, as it would be called, the yes. meeting of peers. Yes, and absolutely. That, that certainly sounds like a very important element. Yes, thank it you. Very and, much and, and, uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> we're all so excited. Uh, what, what we've discovered, Roger, actually there's there's another whole set of precepts. One is waking down in mutuality, and the other is the white hot yoga of the heart, which was also the title of my first book. And in there is our iteration of that marvelous framing in Buddhism of the triple gem, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, the awakened realizer, the teaching, and also the community, Sangha. You know, over the years, the this sense, one of my early mentors as I was really clicked into my awakening process, made a point to me, is that in the early time after I was leaving, I had left Adidas work. He said, spirituality is not just evolutionary, it is itself evolving. And our work has been evolving constantly Mm -hmm. through the years. I mean, that book, Waking Down Now, is like an archaeological site in some ways. Mm -hmm. And the part of the evolution 
for us has been a recognition that the, you know, we, we talk about the Buddha principle as people becoming themselves, what we call heart activators. So they have, they, their transmission, their energy, their natural presence has that effect of helping others tune into themselves. And also dharmas, we continue to use uh, that word because it, it's got so many rich meanings. And also in terms of community, part of what we've realized is that people now are, are so many people working at the kind of level we serve are individuating so intensely and going through so many changes that the, the meaningful group for them, you know, Linda likes to say to people, find your tribe. The meaningful community might be like a pod of people for a few years here or there, and then they move on. And there needs to be room in the concept of community for that. So all of those principles are important. And I don't want us to neglect the shadow work side of this yes. as well that you were pointing to with the, the emotional yes. dimension. Yes, that, that addresses the down aspect of the work. Mm-hmm. We talked a bit about the waking, and Samuel was just, and all of us were talking about mutuality and how these relationships are very, very important in one's transformation. And then the down aspect is doing some of this deep, deep personal shadow work and exploration of some of the wounds we talk about broken zones or broken off zones in relationship that individuals have experienced. Everybody has them on certain levels and happens at certain times of one's life. And sometimes those broken zones or broken off zones can actually be like a chokehold for individuals to be able to go deep in a transformational process. And so the exploration of these and the green lighting of the exploration, green lighting meaning let's dive in deep and let's really embrace and hold the possibility that these can be healed and transformed. That is really, really important in this work. We make clear with everyone right off the bat, and this is important to say here with you two on your Deep Transformation podcast. That is, we're not therapists, we're not licensed therapists, and this is not therapy. However, there is an exploration of a deep psychology that individuals just naturally drop into. Hence the the word down, they drop into these explorations. Yeah, and, you know, it's, it's more specifically a process of recognition. Yes. So oftentimes, we always say to people, you know, it's really good not only to have your tribe of peers and also people who are more advanced, perhaps in the process, who who can be supportive friends, as well as anyone who might be serving as a coach or helper or mentor. Mm -hmm. But it's also important doing this work to have access to a therapist. Yes. You know, we like to say preferably someone who's got a somatic orientation. You know, it's more body inclusive and yeah. based. Somatic and not spiritual? Well, both. Both, yeah. That'd be. Both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But in, that other, would be in other words, <laughs> somatic rather than yeah. mostly or merely cognitive. Okay. 
Yeah. yeah. And, and so that, again, goes to the recognition process that we help people through where they're able to reframe their understanding of the parts of themselves that seem to be the enemies yeah. of their spirituality, of their yes. possible awakening. And this goes on very naturally with people and yeah. helps them more and more to come into the understanding that their own deeper identity as the all is really crystallizing and emerging. And it, as Linda was implying, it necessitates and, and also brings forth more and more, but it, it takes work to really participate with it a recognition of each one's own uniqueness and an appreciation yeah. of the other and the, the necessity for living with kindness, living with compassion. Yeah. And, you know, uh, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, one of the beautiful terms that he came up with is interbeing. We sometimes have used the term interidentification. But that when that becomes an instinctual recognition of interbeing, rather than only something one should practice or aspire to, that's what we're looking to help people get to and along the way to practice with kindness, with care, and you know, the, the kind of rules of the road of mutuality. We've learned many lessons about that and also how hard it is to sustain them sometimes. Mm. You know, people take real risks in opening in trust yeah. and being able to meet one another. Yeah, uh, what we were saying, getting back to the shadows and the wounds and stuff like that, teaching I got, or learning I got, I was getting ready to I don't know, talk or do something, you know, and I was feeling so beat up and so wounded and so hurt. And I was like... God, I'm so fucked up. I don't think you could possibly use me in this situation. And the voice said, well, seeing I am who I am, I think I can work around it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. Thank you. So that, that has really helped me to realize my, my beat up humanness sometimes. And I carry wounds with me. And some of them I've healed and some of them I haven't. And are ongoing. And it seems to be able to, uh, you know, grace or whatever that, ability is seems just to be able to come through you know if you're if you're pure in heart and I, and I say well 70% pure is about as close as I'll ever get so that's pretty good you know so if I'm mostly straight about it you know clear about it I'll just let it rip and and trust God for the rest right oh that's yeah, so thank beautiful you. thank you you know th th there is a practice that I mentioned a little bit ago six-step recognition yoga which really has helped so many people fall into that, that deep green lighting or acceptance or in one of the steps, the, the transformation of broken zone or a, a chokehold of an issue. So the six, yeah, the transcendence. So the six steps is see it, feel it, live it, be it, transcend it in place and speak it all along the way. And quite often what happens when an individual falls very organically a lot of times into that kind of recognition process, something really shifts and changes and transforms. And that's the transcending it in place 
but that doesn't mean that it's an up and out, you know, transcendence where it never appeal, appears again. It's the effect of some of these wounds. Or maybe it's no longer the subject, you know, as we say in, in developmentalism, that what used to control you, it's still there, but exactly. it, you're holding it in a different, expanded, more functional place. Thank you. Well said, and that's exactly what yeah, happens exactly. in that whole process. And it can happen in a moment, or it can actually be an actual practice that a lot of people have engaged in. I remember way back in the day, there was a, a man who was involved in our work many years ago, and I was helping him as a teacher back then. <laughs> and I was walking him through the six-step recognition yoga, and he literally wrote the, the words down on big pieces of paper and put them up on the wall over his bed so that every morning when he would get up, he would turn and he'd look at the six steps and it would help him address some of the issues that he was dealing with. And I literally use the image of a chokehold because some of these issues can feel like that for people. But in that transcending in place, as you said beautifully, John, it, it shifts. You have a different relationship to it. So the chokehold releases, you see it for what it is, and you're able to land more fully in the confidence of your own being. Stay tuned for part two with Samuel Bonder and his teaching partner and wife, Linda Groves Bonder. We are on the deep side of the pool now, friends. Today's episode was brought to you by iWake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.